0: Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of LGBTIQA+, living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Djar Djar Wurrung land and respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land.
1: was born in Melbourne in 1974 I'm a lesbian and my pronouns are she and her I'd like to tell you the story of my childhood and it started with my mum she came here in 1964 from England on like a two-year holiday maker visa but she met my dad shortly after she got here and ended up staying so meeting my dad didn't turn out to be that great she had three children with him and At the point where she had three children under six years old, realised that she needed to leave and it was early 70s. It was quite a difficult time but he was schizophrenic, paranoid, abusive, violent, alcoholic. Just not a great mix. There was a lot going on at home and just after I was born, she was like, I really need to leave this situation. And you think of the time, it was really difficult and so I'm so proud of her that she could do that. I know it's such a difficult thing for a lot of people to leave that situation. But also lucky for her at the time, the women's refuges were just being set up in Melbourne. Women's Lib was happening. There was a lot of marches going on and a lot of action from all of these women to help other women. And so she was able to go into a women's refuge. Um This was, I'm the youngest of three kids and so this was when I was just a baby. But she had a long association with the Women's Refuge and she was on the committee until I was about 10 years old. So all of my childhood was there. I didn't go to kinder or anything, it was all just at the Women's Refuge. I have strong memories of the childcare workers. At the Women's Refuge, being these really lovely, creative women. There was a playground at the back, I remember, and I just, there was always kids, just there were always children there. There was always someone to hang out with. And I have strong memories too of these women in overalls, <laughs> quite a lot of lesbians, sitting around on the floor in circles, having meetings, <laughs> printing off newsletters in one of those. I can't remember what they're called before photocopy. And they were all there for action. They were there to help lift each other up and they were there to, to do the work and to create better lives for each other. There were times where women would come without their children to the women's refuge and we had a little minivan and I remember times where women would go with the woman who just turned up and go and get her kids back from the father or from the nana or someone who was looking after the kids while she fleed. So there was a lot, there was a, just a lot of um, strength from that situation, and there needed to be because there was regularly women coming in and there were also regularly men trying to get in like fathers trying to get in the door and i remember the door was a frosted glass door this is at the women's refuge in st kilda and i remember women inside the house holding the door closed so that a husband couldn't get in things like that so it could be scary as well women were obviously coming in distressed but I think because we were part of it for such a long time we weren't living there that whole time we were just living there for a little bit but mum got back on her feet and um, we moved out but then she was there on the committee for 10 years that we built such a relationship with the workers and the women there and there were great things happening they would take us on camps and just give us a lot of experiences that mum wouldn't have been able to afford as well. She didn't drive, we didn't have a car, so we never really went on holidays. So things like that, I just remember the a lot of positivity around it and a lot of strength building for my mum. But also for me to see other women helping each other like that. In 1976... I think they made a film about the Women's Refuge and I'm in it. Uh, My whole family's in it when I'm two years old and running around in the hallways. And my mum must have been on the shopping or cooking type of committee because she's in the kitchen peeling potatoes in the film. And so that's really lovely. I have a copy of that film. I can have a look at that sometimes and my brother and sister are in it as well. And I think that won some Australian Film Awards at the time just to give... A voice to all of those issues around women's rights and feminism and equality at the time and domestic violence. So m- moving on from that part of our lives I guess an- another support for our family was our local primary school because my sister was at primary school during this time when my mum left my dad. But then the primary school was its own supportive community for our family and they gave mum a lot of furniture when she left the women's refuge and moved out to her own place. So we had all the chairs from the school attic and the carpets from the school attic and things like that and when I was at the school I would often go up to the school attic. I don't think I was supposed to be up there but I just remember going up there and having a little look around and (laughs) seeing what else was up there which was fun a fun thing to do but teachers would give us their holiday houses in balnaring Just mum was really a big part of the communities that she was involved with and the primary school was also like that. She was at the school one day a week sewing library bags in the office. Like she was just always there and always helping out somehow and... I think the community staff would see that and would see the situation she was in. And yeah, that's, here you go, hey, I've got a holiday house. You can go and stay with your kids for a week. And it was just really lovely. Like it wasn't one off either, Well, we would often get to go to that Balnaring holiday house. So just things like that, I think have had a big influence on me, that kind of support that we can offer each other. And yeah, just like, building each other up and helping each other in those times of need yeah so I did also want to talk a little bit about what I felt like I was going through after all this because obviously that was a lot going on for my mum but then growing up in that environment and then I guess how it affected me which definitely was a big influence in my life Um, positively and negatively because I was dealing with my dad and even though my mum had left like it's the early 70s it's like he still has rights and so he still is allowed to come over and he's still allowed to take us out to the beach and he still has to do that. There are a lot of times when mum was back on her feet that he would come over and he would be drunk or something or but he was allowed to come in and he'd start getting violent or something and throw something across the room and I remember this time when I was probably about six and I stood up on the table and I told him he wasn't allowed to do that and he has to leave. He was, up until I was about 12, he lived locally to us and he would often come around and it would be the same thing where he'd be drunk and violent and then he'd leave. So in... In dealing with that, I guess it made it a bit difficult like to have an open trust of people to, because he was very erratic with his mental health issues as well. So just to know who to trust in in, uh, all of those situations that I was being brought up in, although there was a lot of strength and a lot of love from my mom, who's a total sweetheart. There was also all of that other stuff that I was having to deal with um, inside. Through primary school, I was a bit of a loner. I remember climbing trees and just watching people. (laughs) Ah, That's a bit crazy, but that's what I did. And in high school, I didn't climb the trees, but I I guess I made friends with um, international students who needed some help with their English. Just it wasn't like I had really close friends otherwise. And I think that was in part to do with just being a introverted person, but also having trouble to communicate with other people <laughs> what was happening in my life, because there was so much really going on. And even when I was in high school, my dad had moved when I was twelve, so he wasn't around anymore when I was in high school, but he would still call. He was living in Sydney. He was homeless. He was living in Hyde Park on the bench or in the caves up Bondi Beach. And he would call quite regularly and Mum didn't want to talk to him. My sister was older and had moved out at the time and my brother was off and out. So he would call and it'd be me mostly who would pick up the phone and who would stand there and listen to him on the phone. And he would, in his schizophrenic paranoia, would be telling me all kinds of things. And as a young teenager, I... Thought was a bit strange but i also didn't know how to say that i wasn't going to listen as well that that was just i guess that was a hard thing and i guess for my mum having all of that pain from him in the past and not wanting anything to do with him but also being brought up in england in the 40s it's not like you talk a lot about these kinds of things i was never really told that i could hang up on him or say no I'm not going to listen so I just remember a lot of my teenage years just being the one that would just listen to him on reflection that wasn't great and that's caused a lot of stress and anxiety for me as a teenager and then I guess you add to that that in my Late primary school years, I was experiencing childhood sexual abuse, which I don't really want to go into that much, but just to know that was there and happening. So I guess overall I could have learnt some things about saying no (laughs) or about speaking out about things, but at the time obviously I didn't know and it's like this real contrast in my life of all these really strong women like from the Women's Refuge and then all these bad things happening that I guess wasn't really until later on in my life that I said I could take that I had power and I could I could take that Yep, that's the little Paula (laughs) and all through this time from about 12 years old I started dance classes (laughs) and I just fell in love with it and it I feel like it helped me so much because I was such a little quiet kid but having that outlet and that freedom and being able to move and it did so much for my my own mental health and my well-being and all throughout high school I was dancing like doing three-hour dance classes two or three times a week and I just loved it like it's all I wanted to do. I loved everything about it (laughs) and I think throughout my life although I haven't been doing that many dance classes throughout my life I've always tried to find dance and sometimes I haven't had it and I've felt a bit low during those times and then I'll be like oh yeah I have to dance that's what I have to do so whether it's like ballroom dance or tap or ballet like belly dancing anything as long as I can get my body moving to music and that has been very healing for me I'd say So when I was at high school, I got the top mark in Victoria for dance as a VCE subject. But I didn't really think that I was that great. I didn't have the confidence to apply to any dance courses. I didn't, but I applied for uh, speech therapy because my dance teacher, her mother had a stroke and I visited her in hospital and then i saw that she was doing speech therapy after her stroke and i just thought oh i'll give that a go my mum hadn't finished high school she she cleaned people's houses and i'd often go with her and help out and um, see how other people lived in fancy houses but my sister who's the eldest she went to uni and studied psychology my brother didn't go to uni and then it was my turn and i did really well at school and so i just that was what I was going to do, I was going to go to uni. So I started studying speech pathology. This was at La Trobe in Bandura. It was the only uni that offered it. And as I said earlier, we didn't have a car and I never learnt to drive. We were living in Elwood and the commute to Bandura was like two buses and an hour and a half, something like that. So I did it for a year and then I got into the dorms so that it would be easier for me in the second year. And the dorms that I moved into, they're called Chisholm. It's called Chisholm College and it's the international dorm. So a lot of students come from overseas to stay there or from the country. I was studying there in my second year and holidays had started in the middle of the year. And I went home and then when I came back in July, we had a new person on our floor and it's a floor of 12 individual rooms a shared kitchen and two shared bathrooms and I remember going into my room and just hearing everyone was in the kitchen and it was really noisy and that's not my ideal environment so I stayed in my bedroom and I was like why is it so noisy in the kitchen like it's never like this and then I realized after a couple of days that it was the new person who'd moved in it was Kate from America And I believe at the time Kate was thinking, who is that girl Paula and why does she never come out and speak? And I was thinking, who is that girl Kate and why does she never stop speaking? So eventually after a couple of days, I did come out of my little cave and I actually would like to read to you something that Kate wrote. I don't know when she wrote this. I think it might have been like 20 years ago. (laughs) And this is when she first saw me come out of my room at Chisholm College and this is in 1994. We were all standing around the hallway joking around. I was taking a lot of heat for being American and so I was doing my best to defend myself while admitting that America has its faults. Paula showed up just in time as she walked very slowly and deliberately down the hallway with a shy but wide smile and huge eyes. I thought I was looking face to face with an angel. Everybody got really quiet for a moment. Then they rushed her to me. I was interested in her immediately. From that moment when I met her to now, I knew my life was changing. I was captured by her quiet wisdom. The way she sang and danced, the fact that she took an hour to eat a small plate of food because she savoured every bite, the way she moved, walked, talked and maintained a serene optimism whenever she was struggling with something inside. From the moment that I met her and through every step of this journey we were on, I was always aware that I was forging the most important, meaningful and true connection with another human being that I ever had and ever will have. Yes, so that's very sweet. So I think what happened was that when I did come out, we realised that there was a really strong connection between us. Kate was standing in, in the bathroom at one point singing, we are family and she was dancing around and I just looked at her and I thought, oh, we're like the same person almost. Like we, <laughs> There's so much that we have in common and I could just see from that one moment, even though we're so opposite, that there was really some deeper connection there. And uh, another time we were waiting at the tram stop in Bandura, which at the time was, (laughs) there was like nothing up there. But we were waiting at the tram stop and we were going to a place called the Faraway Tree, which was like the university kind of nightclub that was close by and we started singing what a man which is <laughs> quite hilarious that we were singing that but we both knew it all the words and we we're at the train stop dancing and there were just many moments like that where we we were just building a friendship and I never had strong friendships in the past and we just really quickly became best friends and I'd go to I'd go to classes to uni classes and I'd rush back to the dorms to see her or I'd go home for the weekend and I'd rush back like I wanted to come back to see her and there was just um, a lot of moments like that and a lot of strong feelings from the beginning where we felt like we couldn't be out of each other's company and running through sprinklers and all of these moments that capture that time where it's just so intense and you just want to be together all the time. I used to think that I was a fairy when I was 19 (laughs) and at La Trobe I remember there was a willow like a weeping willow tree in a little creek area and I would go and sit under the willow tree all the time and talk to the fairies probably (laughs) and I remember once I felt um, confident that I could trust Kate that I took her there and it was a really special thing that I could do that I could take her to the fairy tree and that she didn't think I was crazy or anything like that and she just listened and it was actually there at the fairy tree that Kate taught me a game that she called the Madonna game And this is very American, but the Madonna game is where you just sit there and talk about how good all the good things about yourself, because Madonna is seems that she might do that. (laughs) And so it's nothing that I would have thought to do. And I was probably doing the exact opposite in my head mostly. And then Kate's, yeah, you just say all the things that are really great about yourself. (laughs) And so we would often go and sit by the fairy tree and play the Madonna game. And yeah, I think that relationship just built on a lot of trust and a lot of positivity and just this bond that was really instantaneous with each other. I remember this one time because Kate was only here for a semester and it was from the middle of the year to the end of the year. And so Thanksgiving rolls around and we don't know anything about Thanksgiving. (laughs) My family didn't know anything about it. But Kate's obviously missing a Thanksgiving with her family at the time. So my mum invited Kate around and we put on a huge thanksgiving we wrote down everything that we needed and we're like honey yams what is that and mum made a pumpkin pie and we tried to make all these things that we had no clue about and had quite a few people over and I think Kate really appreciated that because she was missing her family and it gave my family a real insight into our our friendship at the time and how close we were and then never seen me be with anyone like that before. I guess that gave them a little inkling of what was to come. (laughs) So after the semester, Kate had to go back to the States and we had no plans. She was going back to finish her degree and that was that. We were both 20 at the time and we just felt such pain (laughs) we were still just friends nothing had happened but we couldn't stand not being together and as soon as she left I just remember crying like (laughs) crying all the time and my mum and sister just what's wrong why are you so upset and it was just my heart was breaking and Kate felt the same and so we decided that we would write to each other knowing that this is like end of 94 email was not happening (laughs) very easily so we hand wrote letters pretty much every day cards or letters we could access email at uni but it was the holidays so I would get those two buses for an hour and a half to the trove where I could access the the computer lab and I could send an email. So I do that occasionally. Kate back in the States, I do believe her mum had a computer at home and so she could email, but it was from her mum's email account. Yeah, we had to be careful about what we wrote. We would also send packages like every three days we would receive a package from the other person and we would also record audio tapes and the way that I could do that was to borrow an audio tape recorder from the uni library (laughs) so I'd have to go in and borrow the tape recorder and it had two tape decks and you could record onto the other tape so that then you could play you could record music from one tape onto the blank cassette tape and you could record your voice onto the blank cassette tape. So that's what we would do. We would record voice and music. And we probably got an audio cassette tape like once every couple of weeks in the mail. It was so lovely because then you could just (laughs) play it on repeat and hear the voice of the other person, which was so lovely. And we have all of these things still. They're very precious to us. We keep them in a special little box. (laughs) So we were apart for six months and then Kate somehow managed to get the money to come back to Australia for my 21st birthday in July the following year, just for a couple of weeks. And it was at that visit that we really realised that we were more than best friends more than besties even though we had our little love heart necklace that was the best friends love heart that was broken (laughs) in half. we were more than best friends and we couldn't stand to be away from each other and yeah it, it became a lot more during that visit and then we had to be apart for another six months and it just kept happening because we were both studying and there was no way that we could be together at that time so we just committed to trying as much as we could we didn't have a lot of money because we were students so I remember I created my Kate account <laughs> instead of my bank account I called it my Kate account so that I could try to get money to go to America but I was a student I was on Aus study. I was from a family didn't have a lot of money so I was saving every penny so that six months later I could go and visit Kate in America so I was able to do that I think I was working at a checkout chick at Coles or something <laughs> at the time and Kate was studying at Boston and Boston Uni at that point and I went over there just like on Boxing Day I think I left on Boxing Day because mum didn't want me to miss Christmas at home and it was like full-on snow everywhere and we were able to stay in a friend's apartment in Boston so we were alone and it was just a really magical time really just the first time that we were really alone and I think I was there for about five weeks I was able to stay with Kate at the dorms at Boston Uni because you can't have a boy in your dorm but you can have a girl in your dorm (laughs) and then I went back to Kate's family's place and met them and we went to Disney (laughs) so it was a bit of a whirlwind trip but it really I guess for both of us made us realise that we were each other's lives then and that we were going to find a way no matter what to be able to live in the same country which wasn't really easy at that point in time in 1995 I believe there were only five countries in the world that, you, that would allow, like, immigration with a same-sex partner from that country. I just remember searching and searching, trying to find answers of how we could be together. And thankfully for the Gay and Lesbian Community Directory, <laughs> because deep within this little treasure, we found the Gay and Lesbian Immigration Task Force And it says here that they provide advice and support for Australian citizens seeking permanent residency for their overseas partners. And they meet at four o'clock on the first Sunday of every month at the Betty Day Centre in St Kilda. (laughs) And I was living just near there at the time. I contacted them and we received some advice because we were very lucky. Australia was one of those five countries. America wasn't, so that wasn't able to be one of our options. So we did everything that we needed to do in order to get Kate here. And it basically meant that we we had to spend as much time together and we had to prove that time that we spent together so we counted those two trips we counted the time at the trobe uni that and we counted that saying that we were living together and we counted The two trips that we had because it's you know you have to prove that you've lived together but you can't live in the same country (laughs) so it was a really catch-22 that kind of situation but we did all that we could we opened joint bank accounts we all of those types of things that we could do so that then six months later kate was able to come to australia on a holiday maker visa and that was only a one-year visa, but we knew within that time that we had to gather all of the evidence that we needed in order for her to stay. Yeah, so we had to have the lease of our apartment in both of our names, just all those little things, knowing that we'd have to go to immigration and thinking probably from some crazy movie that we'd seen that the immigration officer was going to ask us what color toothbrush does your partner have (laughs) something like that so I I just remember being obsessed about the color of the toothbrush for some reason thinking that I would be asked that and I wasn't (laughs) but uh, yeah when the time came and we were applying for Kate to stay we had to apply for a interdependency visa And this is a visa class that's often used when someone wants to care for like an elderly grandmother or something like that. So somehow it was snuck into that category, (laughs) same-sex couples, and we were able to apply through that visa and thanks to the immigration task force who had told us about that because otherwise we wouldn't have known and also thankfully our immigration officer Sandra was part of the LGBT community and after you apply there's like a period of time where you have to go back and give more evidence but Sandra would see us under the Ferris wheel at Midsummer Carnival <laughs> or she'd see us like at the Matrix ball or something like that and yeah we were always so thrilled that she was there in that role and then it made it not so scary that whole process so I remember going to the immigration building in the city when we made the application and as I said before Kate and I had kept all of our correspondence over those two years that we weren't together all the time And we had it all in a box and we we went up to file for the visa and took the whole box with us. And they looked at us, the receptionist, and she said, "Um, no, we can't accept that. We were like, oh yes, but this is all the evidence and she's no it's too much we can't accept it we're like but it's all important and she handed us an A4 envelope and she said here you can put a few things in this and we were scrambling to find all the good stuff out of the box so that we could put it in the envelope but um yeah that's the short part of the story is that Kate got to stay and that she got that interdependency visa which eventually became temporary resident and then a permanent resident and then she applied for citizenship and she had her citizenship ceremony in 2001 and so even though there's a lot of pain there for her and for both of us that we can't, we can only be in one place, the fact is that we could be together so that was wonderful but it meant that Kate had to be away from her family which is very difficult and has always been difficult and even now to this day is difficult. I guess I've always understood that's a sacrifice that Kate made to to be with me is to come here to another country to live. And so that's love really, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that was in 2001. And so then we decided to get married, which wasn't legal at the time. So we say we had an illegal wedding that we called a commitment ceremony at the time. And Kate's parents came from America for our commitment ceremony we had a Ripponlea house in Ripponlea in Melbourne and my family was there and we just had a few friends so it wasn't very big and then we had we went on a um, a boat on the Yarrow River for our reception and it was just very joyous because we had spent all this time wanting to be together not knowing if we could be together just writing all these letters of how much we were going to miss uh, how much we missed each other and trying to work out how we could get together and not really knowing how and then all of a sudden we were together and we were married and it was such a lovely celebration and just felt so so real and i guess we were just so much in love yeah and we still are so this is a card that Kate had written to me at the end of 1995 and this was when we were trying to still trying to work out emails and how to do email (laughs) and we were still trying to work out how she could possibly come here and she's written this in the card. I'm missing you so much. We talked on the phone tonight and your voice sounded so sweet and nice. I was so excited just to listen to you. I love you so much. I really am going to die if we can't do email, but I promise I will figure out a way. I don't really have much to write because I talked to you on the phone and wrote to you in an email today. I just wanted to tell you how much I love you and tell you everything will work out. Just think how hard we work on other things in our life, our families, our friends, dance, film, uni or even my big job search. We are good at working out hard things and I think if there is one word that doesn't describe us, it is quitters. So I think this really talks about us at the time that it was just we were in this kind of limbo space where we didn't know how we could work any of it out. We didn't even know how we could work out emailing, let alone getting someone on <laughs> to another country. Just reflecting on how, like even though you don't know how you can work something out, You just take the little steps that you can and you don't give up, you just keep going and you just source information from everywhere that you can because remembering at the time there's no internet, the email was like a black screen with green writing, that's all you could manage. (laughs) We just had to source the information from anywhere we could. We had to have a lot of hope that something good would come from it and really not give up. So I think if you're really struggling with trying to work something out the best thing to do is not to give up hope but just to keep keep going one little bit at a time and then we did (laughs) we made that happen and as I said to my mum at one point that I wanted to send Kate some socks (laughs) and my mum said I'm sure she can buy socks over there too (laughs) So don't forget all those little things as well that that are important and all those little things that mean I love you as well. So then after Kate and I got together we found that, I guess we found different community groups and Kate, being an artist, joined the Lesbian Artworks and had they were having shows from Brunswick Mechanics Institute and I joined the Women's Circus. So the Women's Circus, they've been running from Footscray for many years and at the time when I, I knew about the Women's Circus before I joined them, which I joined them in 2001, but I thought you had to be a lot older to join them. I thought you had to be 55, which is actually the Performing Older Women's Circus. So I joined the Women's Circus in 2001 and at the Women's Circus was this wonderful woman, Vidge, who was one of the workers at the Women's Refuge. So Vidge was a big circus performer. She had known me since I was a baby and there she was at the Women's Circus. So immediately I felt like this, just like this, it was a nurturing space and it was supportive. The Women's Circus does a big show every couple of years and the year that I joined was a big show. And I think it was their 10th anniversary and they did a show called Secrets and it was about domestic violence childhood sexual abuse so it was a big show to come into the circus with and having my own experience of those things meant that it was quite a significant show personally for me they the women's circus had set up a lot of support groups because a lot of the women in the circus have those experiences I remember Kate came to do techie stuff so we were together a lot and I was with the Women's Circus for about five years and just met all these really wonderful women a lot of queer women and a lot of people that I'll be friends with for a long time just so much creativity and and support there and understanding that was a wonderful thing to be a part of and then from circus i was like i still need to dance (laughs) i realized that there's a dance school called dance cats and dance cats is gay and lesbian ballroom dancing and i never tried ballroom dancing i thought i'll give it a go so actually kate and i started together but soon realized that that probably wasn't a good idea because um i think i was following when I should have been leading and all of that kind of stuff. I continued on with Dance Cats and one of the women there was actually a woman from the circus. Just there was another connection there and Dance Cats was great because it was this community that would travel around Australia and compete in competitions with other same-sex dance schools. It was always the same little communities getting together and competing with each other but then this one time they had the Asia-Pacific Out Games in Darwin and we got to go to that so there was a whole wide range of sporting events and then there was dance sport and um, I remember it was so hot (laughs) but it it was a great event and it was a wonderful thing to be a part of um, that community and it's like we took over the whole of Darwin and yeah I feel like all of those types of things in the community and being creative and movement-based are really Good things for me and places that I find work really well for me and I find lots of people in those places that uh, I get along really well with so I keep seeking them out (laughs) we made a move to Castlemaine recently and Kate always laughed at me when we lived in the city because I would see people <laughs> across the road and I'd say, "Oh, look, there's some lesbians. Let's go be friends with them." <laughs> and you can't just do that, but I find that in Castlemaine <laughs> that the queer community is so present and supportive and so encouraging and just so there and it's wonderful. I love it. I love I love that part of Castlemaine that There are so many groups and events and such lovely people that you can be a part of. You don't have to chase people across the street to meet them. (laughs)
0: This project was made possible with the financial assistance of Victoria's Pride Regional Activation Program and Midsummer Festival and with the support of the Mount Alexander Shire Council, the Mount Alexander Shire LGBTIQA Steering Group and the Queer and Now radio program on Main FM 94.9. This podcast has been produced by the Queer and Now team, Shireen Clough and Amalie O'Hara at Main FM 94.9. Editing and original music by Amy Chapman. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such a wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTI QA Helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline 1800 555 1800.